the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh is creating a new government ministry, a ministry of happiness, dedicated to, and this is a quote, putting a smile on every face. A government minister, whose name I'm not going to, to risk pronouncing, uh, has said that the state will be made responsible for happiness, uh, for the happiness of its citizens, and will rope in psychologists to counsel people on how to be always happy. Well, all the best with that. Um, but is it a desirable thing to be always happy? It sounds like an ideal thing. It sounds like something that we should want in this world. But Jesus tells us in the verse we're looking at today, in the beatitude we're looking at today, that blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who aren't always happy. Blessed are those who deliberately take it on themselves to, for certain reasons which we'll see, not be happy. So there's something not quite right about always pursuing happiness. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving us eight characteristics that are to mark people who follow God. These are eight characteristics that God's verdict on these characteristics is saying these characteristics are valuable. And we're particularly told they're valuable because the world around us doesn't value them. If uh, you were to say to somebody that we spent this morning thinking about how worthwhile it is to cultivate sorrow, they would, think to you, they would look at you and they would think or say to you, would you weigh and wise up? And don't take life so seriously. If you said to them that uh, next week, God willing, we will be thinking on how superior a quality meekness is. Or how it is a good thing whenever people insult you, they would say, what planet are you on? And yet, these things that we would naturally shy away from, Jesus is saying, that they are valuable, blessed. The word means approved by God. They bring God's favor. God is saying these are things that are worthwhile developing. That's what we want to look at this morning. This characteristic of sorrow. And if we were to give this morning a heading or a title, we would call it The Folly of Happiness and the Wisdom of Sorrow. And that's what we want to think of. And there's three things that I want us to, to note here. First of all, empty happiness. Empty happiness. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's cutting right across what our world says to us. Our world says happiness is the be-all and end-all. Happiness should drive everything. And if you're not happy, change everything. And Jesus is saying, hold on a minute, hold on, slow down. There is a value to sorrow. There is a worth to sorrow. And by saying that, he's saying that happiness isn't all it's cracked up to be. In fact, there's an, an emptiness to happiness, which is what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 2. And that flags up for us a stumbling block for 21st century people. 
Because in our world, people have made happiness their goal. They've made happiness their driving motivation. They've made happiness the thing that defines who they are. Way back in the days of the Greeks and the Romans, people got their sense of identity, who they are, from being part of the city or the community. Uh, They got their sense of identity from belonging to uh, their community. In the Middle Ages, particularly, people got their sense of identity from their religion and its rituals and going on pilgrimages or becoming monks or going into the priesthood or going to, to, to services. that They got their identity mainly from their religion. Industrial Revolution, people got their identity more so from their work, from their job. Of course, the Christian would say none of those things are good enough for us to get our identity from, but, but what they all have in common is that they're, they are communal they're, they're got from doing something alongside other people. But from the middle of the 20th century onwards, particularly people have got their sense of who they are from their happiness. Are they happy? And that is man looking in on himself, all curved in, looking in and saying, well, what makes me happy? And it, it's a dangerous pursuit. It's a very dangerous pursuit because it actually started to define what's right and wrong. Somebody will say, well, I'm no longer happy in my marriage, so I'll break my promises. I'll break my word. I will not be faithful. I I will leave my husband, my wife, and I will go and marry somebody else. And if we were to say that that's wrong, people in our world around us would say, but why? If, If... but if it makes them happy, if they've no longer any happiness. It shows us the level to which happiness has become the driving force. Somebody will say, I'm no longer happy as a man. I want to be regarded as a woman. Somebody will say, and I'm not making these things up, somebody will say, I'm not happy as an adult. I want to be treated as a child. I want to be treated as a five-year-old. And they will wear a nappy and they will uh, eat with a plastic bowl and spoon. Uh, and I say, this is, this is where I find my happiness. Somebody will say, I'm not happy as a human. I feel my happiest when I live as a dog. Johnny wrote an article about it in the letter Kenny Post this week. Or a tiger. Or a dragon. And then some, somebody else will say, well, if it makes them happy, why not? What's wrong with it? Happiness has come to be the driving force, the headlong pursuit of happiness. It lies at the root of where we're at as a society today. And people have trained themselves to value happiness above everything else. And Jesus cuts right across this and says... There's a blessedness to taking time to mourn and to invest in sorrow. There's something bigger than happiness, something that we'll miss if we pursue only happiness. There's a bigger picture to be seen. And an American philosopher said this search, I don't think the man's a, a Christian. Um, as far as I know, he's just, this is 
American philosopher, he said, the search for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. Solomon could have told him that. He, he tried it out in Ecclesiastes, like we read. And he said it was a chasing after the wind. Another man, Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, an English journalist, said the pursuit of happiness is without any question the most fatuous or lunatic or idiotic which could possibly be undertaken. I can say that, that I never knew what joy was. Sorry, I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness. Then he adds this, for this discovery I am beholden to Jesus. I wasn't expecting that as I was reading his quote. As I was looking for, for what people had said about the pursuit of happiness. And there's the clue. There's where the answer is going to lie. But we want to see that the world that we're in, there's a pursuit of happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a call, and Jesus is not calling us to be miserable. The Bible is packed full of commands to joy and to, to rejoice in the Lord. And to rejoice in the Lord always. Paul says, I'll say it again, rejoice. In Philippians, over and over again. Psalm 100, come ye before him with mirth, serve him with joy, enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. But hear what did they say? Joy, joy. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Joy is deeper. It's rooted in something other than what is happening, which is where the word happiness comes from, what's happening to us. Joy is rooted in something outside of simply happenings. And there's a kind of pursuit of happiness that is a kind of insanity. Men and women and young people who use happiness as a mask to pursue, or to, to cover over their own fears, worries, anxieties, shortcomings, failures, to, to cover over the silences so they don't have to to face the past, to cope with the present, to face up to those deep, uh, dark truths about themselves, and they pursue happiness to cover it over. And yet, the Christian is able to have something deeper than happiness, to have joy, because he or she has faced these dark and unpalatable truths and has had them dealt with. That's why Jesus says there's a sorrow that's blessed. That's what we want to see next. Empty happiness, blessed sorrow. Blessed sorrow. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a folly to happiness and a wisdom to sorrow. Now, what is this mourning that Jesus speaks of? Is it the grief of somebody at a funeral who has been bereaved? Is it that sort of mourning? We often hear this verse read at funerals. Well, that's not primarily what it's about. Is it a word of comfort to those who are depressed or to those who are melancholy or to those who are pessimistic? It's not that either. These beatitudes, these statements from Jesus are not just random sayings that he, he comes out with. They're picking up on key qualities that are spoken of over and over again in the Old Testament. And when we look at the Old Testament, we find that the mourning that God speaks of being turned into joy 
is a mourning over sin. It's a mourning particularly seen in the people of Israel when they were taken by God into exile as punishment for their sin. We see uh, Daniel, we see Jeremiah, we see Nehemiah, we see Ezra mourning and weeping for the sin of the people. We hear in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept as we remembered Zion. They were being taken away to Babylon because of their sin. God's kingdom was in tatters. God's glory uh, was in, uh, had departed from the people. And the people mourned over this. They wept over it. And that's what's being spoken of here. And in Isaiah 61, which speaks of that poverty of spirit that's in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, also speaks of uh, those who mourn. It, it seems that Isaiah 61 is perhaps behind these opening beatitudes. In Isaiah 61, uh, God says that Isaiah is to say to the people that the day will come when good news will be proclaimed to the poor, when God will comfort all who mourn, and he will provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning. Those who took their sins seriously, who took God's punishment seriously, and who mourned and wept over it, they're the ones that are going to experience blessing. So this, pro, this beatitude isn't simply a, a blank check written for anyone who's sad. It's about a particular kind of sadness, a particular kind of sorrow. And we see it marked out for us in the man who lives out all of these beatitudes perfectly. Those eight qualities there on the page in front of you are like brush strokes that portray for us what Jesus himself is like. He's the man who lives them all out. And we see Jesus living out what it's like to mourn, a right sort of mourning. We see Jesus weeping on three occasions. We see him weeping at a graveside, overlooking a city, and in a garden. Let's think of those. And they'll help us see the type of mourning that we are called to display. First of all, the, gra- uh, the garden. The garden. We'll take it. And I believe Peter Neely spoke on it last week here. The garden of Gethsemane. And there we see Jesus weeping over sin. Not his sin, but Jesus is weeping over a burden of sin. That's the first type of mourning we see Jesus showing us. Weeping over a burden of sin. It's not his sin, but he has come to take the sins of his people. And in Gethsemane, he sees the awfulness of our sin. It's as it were set before him in all its grotesqueness. And he is going to have to take our sin. And it draws forth from him prayers and loud cries. Tell me, does your sin make you weep? Does it grieve you? Or do we just shrug our shoulders and think to ourselves, oh well, Jesus paid for it. Does our sin trouble us? Does our ongoing sin 
trouble us because no Christian is perfect. We sin every day. Does it bother us that we sin every day? Jesus is saying that those who are grieved because of their sin are the ones who find comfort. Those who see that sin is serious. Does your sin trouble you? Do you see your sin as God sees it? Do you see this attitude, this manner of speaking, this habit of thought process, this stubbornness, this reaction that you know was wrong? Do you see that as being the very thought process, words, reactions or actions that put the Son of God on the cross? We sang in Psalm 38, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Maybe, maybe we're not weepers. Maybe tears don't come. That's not the point. But does our sin burden us? Does it trouble you that there are still areas in your life where you are not Christ-like? And you can see them clearly. Does it trouble you? Psalm uh, 38, later on in the psalm, I confess my iniquity, I am troubled by my sin. Isaiah 6, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Job, uh, Job uh, 42, uh, says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He means his, his sin. These are godly men whose sin bothered them. In, in looking at this verse, I was really struck by how I can take for granted the forgiveness that Jesus brings and not be troubled by my own sin. I wonder, is that true of you as well? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian who is bothered by your sin. Well, hold on till we come to the comfort in a moment or two. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and your sin bothers you. Well, come, come to the one who offers to take your sin, to take all that will cause you sorrow and all that does cause you sorrow and to pay for it. He offers to weep so that you can be comforted. Or could it be that there's someone here this morning who's not a Christian and their sin doesn't bother them? They think, so what's the big deal? Well, here is God the Son the one who will judge you, saying it is a big deal. He sees the terribleness of sin and weeps at the very sight of it. And he knows the judgment that's going to come on it. And he offers to weep for you. He says it's a big deal. Let me urge you, if you haven't come and put your trust in him, if you haven't come to him and said, will you take my sin and pay for it to do so this morning? Here's the characteristic the godly man or woman their sin bothers them we see Jesus standing at uh, the side of a tomb and he's weeping not the tears of bereavement because he's going to raise Lazarus he's going to raise him in five minutes or two minutes whatever length of time the delay was he's going to raise him so why is he weeping it's not as if he thought, oh, Lazarus is dead. This is terrible. This is terrible. And then, oh, 
Hold on a minute. Why am I weeping? I can raise him from the dead. That's not how the thought process works. He knows he's going to do this miracle. He's weeping because he sees that sin has hurtled in, not the effects of sin, the effects of Adam and Eve's sin, the fall has Those effects have gone crashing in through the lives of his friends and has left debris everywhere like that lorry driver who hurtled in through the crowd in Nice. If ever you wanted an illustration of the destructiveness of sin in our world, there's an illustration. That is what, if we could see sin like that, sin that Adam and Eve caused to come into the world is like that lorry hurtling in through a crowd of people, scattering them and smashing them and tearing families apart and leaving all sorts of debris and smashed lives in its wake. That's what sin's like. Do you weep? Not just when you see the lorry driving in through the crowd. Do you weep when you see the brokenness of lives around you? Or do we take it in our stride? It's easy to become immune to all that we see in television, but it should, it should burden us. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Not suggesting that we walk around in floods of tears all the time, but does it ever happen? Does it ever happen that you look at the news or you hear of somebody's marriage breaking down? And you, you, you just want to weep. Or, or it bothers you. And it leaves a heaviness on your soul. Yes, we know God's going to fix it. But Jesus knew he was going to fix Lazarus' death. It didn't stop him from weeping over the brokenness of the world. Then we stand with Jesus overlooking Jerusalem. There it is on the far hill. And you turn to him and he, he's, he's weeping. Only three occasions were told that he wept. This is the third one. And he's weeping. And why is he weeping? He sees this great city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who murdered the prophets. Oh, that you would have come to me and I would have gathered you under my wings. He says, then in Luke 19, he wept over the city and he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. He sees all these lost people. You see, the world isn't just a mess, but people are lost. And he weeps for these lost people. It's easy to forget that. Do you you remember that, that when the people that you're standing with in the queue in Tesco or Aldi or Centra, Many of them are heading towards a lost eternity. People in the car in front of you. People at the other end of the phone. People next door. People perhaps sitting across a table. Their family, their friends, their neighbours. Maybe they're people we don't even know. Maybe they're people we don't even like. Paul, in Philippians 3, speaks of men who had caused all sorts of trouble for him. And he says, 
As I have told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things, Paul says. It brings me to tears to even think about this. These people are lost. Does it bother us? Jesus wept over the very people who would mock him and call out, crucify him. He wept over them. The people who would reject him. Do we weep for people who reject and mock our faith? You see, Jesus says there's there's a type of sorrow that's sensible. There's a type of sorrow that comes when we see this world through the lens of, of God's kingdom. And through the lens of of eternity, and as we see this world through God's eyes, there is a type of weeping that is blessed because we are being godlike, we're being godly in it. But then he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. So we've had empty happiness, we've had blessed sorrow, and now we've got certain comfort. Certain comfort they will be comforted. And whenever God says, they will be comforted, he doesn't mean that he'll give them a pat on the back and say, there, there, everything will be okay. He doesn't say, it's not that he puts a divine arm around their shoulders and say, look, I'm sure it'll all work out. In the Old Testament, when God says, comfort, comfort my people, he goes on to speak of how he will make everything new, how he will send one who will be a saviour, how he will take away sin, how he will bring the people back, how he will restore them to their country and to their city and to Jerusalem, and how all the peoples of the earth will come and worship. He says he will do this. And it's certain. And he did bring them back. And he did send a saviour. And the peoples of the nations are coming. There's a certainty to God's comfort. There's a certainty to God's comfort. And we can know it because the one who wept is the one who has joy now. Jesus who wept in the garden, who wept at the tomb, and who wept over the city is now seated in heaven filled with joy. We're going to sing in a moment or two from Psalm 30 that weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. There's certain comfort. Let me give you the three aspects that match the three aspects of our morning. Certain forgiveness. Certain forgiveness. Guaranteed forgiveness, we could call it. Guaranteed forgiveness. Those who mourn over their sins. Maybe you've been grieved by certain sins that you've been struggling with. They have really been getting you down. Or you think of things in your past and think, why Why did I do that? Or if only I'd become a Christian sooner. God says, here is certain, guaranteed comfort. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Certain, guaranteed forgiveness. Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And whilst we value and delight in the truth that Jesus has forgiven our sins, we don't want to let, we don't, 
We don't want to let that truth swamp the seriousness of our sin to make our sin seem small things. Because the more that we grasp that our sin is seriousness, are serious, the more we will marvel that we have been forgiven. And the more we marvel that the God who has forgiven us is the God who hated our sin, the more we will love Jesus, the more we will be assured that we belong in his family, the more we will know that we belong to him. Don't shortcut your journey to forgiveness. Don't sidestep the long, hard look at yourself. Don't evade the pointing finger of your conscience. Grieve. Run to Christ and be comforted and know that those that God forgives, He never lets go of certain comfort. And then there's a certain spread of the gospel. The certain spread of the gospel. As we look over the world and its lostness, and grieve as Jesus did, there is comfort. There's comfort. If we look out over Letterkenny, if we look out over Donegal, as we look out over wherever and whoever our families, and we think, these people aren't interested. There is comfort because the salvation of people is not entirely in their hands. God saves those he chooses to save. Christ will build his church. The gospel will triumph. True? Not in everyone's life. Salvation will come, but not to all. It may be that some of the people that we weep for, whether it's husbands, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, mothers, fathers, neighbors, friends, will continue to reject Christ, just like some in Jerusalem did. But amongst those people in Jerusalem that Christ looked out over the city and wept. And there there were people who rejected him and called for his crucifixion. There were people there who two, three months later were standing in Jerusalem looking at Peter and saying, Peter, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and believe. And thousands of them were added to the church that day. It may be that our tears are the very thing that God uses to bring someone to Christ. Our deep concern that this matters causes us to speak with a greater urgency. Our care may soften their heart. The gospel will spread. We will see it spread. And we can take God at His word that even as we're mourning and weeping for those who show no evidence of coming to Christ and who don't come to Christ, that nevertheless our Father in heaven will still comfort us. He will comfort us in some shape or form. But He will comfort us. But part of the comfort may well be that we see them through our tears coming to put their trust in Christ. And then the third aspect, certain forgiveness, certain spread of the gospel, and then certain restoration. Certain restoration. We mourn over the brokenness 
that sin brings into the world, disease and decay and death. And the brokenness crashes into our lives uninvited. And we grieve over the limitations and the the weaknesses and the frailties and the brokenness of life. We mourn over aging and its aches, yet one day we will be given resurrection bodies. We mourn when we watch the news and we say, could there not be at least one day of good news? One set of clips, a bit like in Euro 2016 when they showed all the clips in the news of the Irish fans being wonderful and changing tyres and fixing dented roofs and picking up litter and and generally being amazing. And yet a whole swathe of football-related clips and fans being uh, kind and generous. So this is great. Imagine the news was like that all the time. Well, one day it will be. Certain, guaranteed. See, we can either pretend that this world is the best there's going to be and do all we can to pursue our happiness here, or we can admit this world is broken and we can look to the repairer of brokenness and we can trust him. And we can know, we can know that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Can you wait? Imagine two men in a poor job and they get paid scabby wages. But one is the promise of a new house and a hundred million euro bonus at the end. Could he put up with it? Couldn't he? He would put up with it, wouldn't he? And if that changes how he approaches his job, how much more should the certain restoration of everything comfort us as we live in this brokenness? Blessed indeed are those who see the brokenness for what it is instead of hiding from it. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. There is a wisdom to sorrow and a foolishness to pursuing happiness. Let me finish with two words. A word to those who have reason to mourn. There is comfort to be had. Look to Christ and to his promises. And a word to those who would pursue happiness apart from God. There is joy to be had. Lasting, eternal joy. But it doesn't come to those who haven't mourned. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful promise from the lips of your Son and lived out in the life of your Son so we can see how it is we should mourn, but we can see also the certainty of the truthfulness of it. And we can hear that for the joy set before him, he, he scorned the cross and endured its shame. For the joy set before him. Lord, help us to live with that certainty of the joy set before us. Help us to see this world for what it is, to see our, ourselves for what we are, and to to weep over the things that should be wept over, to, be, to grieve over our sin, to grieve over those close to us and those far from us who are lost, to grieve over the, the broken, smashed up nature of this world and then fill us with the comfort that only you can give. 
And Lord, let people see that there is more to life than simply pursuing happiness, but that there is a deeper joy to be had. Father, help us to live in such a way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.